Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hey, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And with me today is Jess Keefe, um, which is a, it's a good old Irish name, that, isn't it, Jess? Would you yep. like it? Irish Catholic family grew up in Boston. Yep. Did you really? All, all the cliches sure and none the worse <laughs> for that. Brilliant. Took the O off the name when they came to the States. Truly did you really? the most cliche. Yeah, that's the family lore, at least, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize that was so much of a thing. Well, yeah. it's a delight to meet you today and to um, um, really to sort of have a chat with, with you about what you're all about. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll figure out what, what it is that you do. Sure. Yep. So um, I am a writer. I'm an editor. Um, I'm also an advocate for issues related to mental health and substance use disorders. Um, So I spend a lot of my time uh, writing and speaking and thinking about these sorts of issues that continue to be so vexing, um, and especially here in the States, um, keeping overdose rates so high. um, And it's an issue that really impacts, I think, a lot of people um, internationally as well, but especially, yeah. you know, all sorts of families, all sorts of ages, all sorts of people. Um, so yeah, that is, that is generally what I spend most of my time doing. And, and what did you, how did you get into that sort of world? Well, it's, I think it, my story is very similar to, I think the story that a lot of people have, which is personal experience. Um, so I had my beloved younger brother, uh, struggled with mental health and substance use for most of his, uh, adult life. Um, and, and he passed away in 2015, um, when we were, we were living together, we were very close. Um, and so I had sort of a front row seat to a lot of the, um, stuff he was going through, uh, very frustrating attempts to get him, um, the help that he needed, appropriate treatment, um, science-based addiction treatment, which, you know, I think that that sort of some, sounds like a misnomer to people sometimes, but there is so much scientific and uh, professional information about how best to treat substance use disorders. I think the frustrating thing is that so uh, rarely is that actually used um, in many treatment uh, programs or or resources that are available to people. And it's all sort of this big cloud of misinformation and confusion and stuff. So mm-hmm. for years, we, you know, my family and my parents, uh, you know, we were all very involved. He was very loved. He was very, um, you know, supported by all of us. And, um, you know, sometimes it just doesn't take. So um, yeah. after, yeah, after he passed away, 
Um, I felt very much, uh, like I needed to kind of like untangle some of this stuff and figure it out. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's something that will always be ongoing, but, um, learning about the nature of substance use disorders and mental health issues and stuff has been really helpful to me. Um, and I've met so many other people who've been through similar things, um, who are are in recovery themselves, who've experienced substance use disorders firsthand. Um, and it's sort of a a similar sort of drive to, to, to demystify it. Yeah. Well, you give me plenty to go out there. So let's just uh, <laughs> let's just unpack a few things, uh, if sure. we could. Um, so you say substance use disorders, um, which is an interesting way of putting it itself. But um, you talk about there being a scientific approach, as if that's a surprise. And mm. um, so, what other things are people using to control these these conditions? Well, I think that in my view, it was surprising to learn because I think at every turn where my brother was involved with um, medical systems, um, we were made to feel like he had more of like a personality disorder or like a character flaw or was sort of like making, you know, bad choices or or things like that. You know, there wasn't a lot of acknowledgement um, or understanding that what was going on with him was a medical issue. Um, it, it was treated more like he was sort of a bad person, um, was struggling with, or, or even when that was not the case, when it was not the full on, you know, stigmatized kind of condemnation of what was happening to him. On the other hand, it would be, you know, um, send him off to a 12 step meeting, you know, send him off to one of those church basements and he can kind of, you know, yield himself to the higher power. And that will be adequately therapeutic for his medical condition, which was for, you know, and and, and, you know, 12 steps, that sort of stuff. It does work for many people and that's not to deride it for the people that it does work for, but it's not the only option. And it definitely isn't the the first line of defense for this sort of uh, thing. So, um, you know, so throughout his issues, it was more either people not really agreeing that it was a medical situation at all, or people sort of directing him to like, um, I don't know, like self-help or religion or things like that. Um, yeah. when what he was dealing with was um, chemical, you know, in many so, ways. So so um, a couple of questions just to sort of, uh, sort of position it for people. Um, so how old was he when this started and how did you start, start to spot the signs of something happening? Yep. So um, he was 26 when he passed away and that was in 2015. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, from a really young age, I think, you know, 13, 14, um, he was, you know, you know, it starts the way it kind of always does uh, with, you know, alcohol or marijuana, things that are just kind of available. And then over the years, it somehow turned into, you know, I remember the first time he was hospitalized, we were all kind of really shocked to find out that he was using, intravenously using heroin. Um, And we were all really surprised by that. And then um, I kind of continued with that. And that was sort of the main, um, driver of his, of his drug use. Um, but I think that, you know, especially where I'm from, I'm from Massachusetts. Um, I was in high school in the early two thousands. Oxycontin was very big, um, in my town. Um, it was everywhere. It was really readily available. Um, pills were at parties. They were, they they were just kind of all around. So I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of people, I don't know this for sure with my brother, we never really like got into it on that level. Um, so I don't know exactly how the, the use began, but I know that for many other people that I do know who are from where I'm from and are from the time period that I grew up in, um, that is definitely how it started. And then over the years, um, the pills became less readily available, right? People started to kind of crack down on prescribing. Yeah. There weren't the pill mills anymore. And, you know, of course that does make sense in a certain way. However, taking the pills away with nothing else on offer for the people that were using them, um, a lot of people just started using street supply heroin. It's cheaper. It was easily yeah. available. 
um, that sort of thing. So um, I think my brother's trajectory was similar to that. So, so it's often said that there are sort of three causes, aren't there? There's the uh, 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 to make it to to make it to condense it in a way. There's a sort of an internal um, need for dopamine. So there's this sort of chasing the, the rush. There's the sort of moving away from pain, and it's it's actually about pain. But you're sort of more highlighting the um, the sort of social factors here. Um, and I wonder whether those three things are sort of a Venn diagram between the three, and it's it's it, it needs all three to be in a, in effect, or or actually, is it possible to be driven by one of those areas? I'm just thinking because actually, you know, one of the one of the one of the key things seems to be if you can cut this thing off at an early stage, people have a, a greater chance of of um, you know gr- growing up to be able to know their mind and deal with it. So I'm just mm-hmm. wondering. I'm just wondering if this is a this is a societal thing or a personality thing or, or or just a chemical thing. I mean, I think you're right. I think it is all of those things, and I think that you know, um, it, it's a very specific. It's usually my view of it as I've come to you know learn about it is it's a very specific person with a very specific genetic background, a very specific yeah. environmental background, a very specific behavioral background coming into a very specific environment, and that yeah. is sort of it can you know it's it really is like. Um, you know, I know that it's, it's, I think it's kind of human nature to want to like summarize or like find like what the reason was, you know, or like pin it on something specific and be like, oh, this happened to him and it made him, uh, addicted to heroin, you know? And I think it's so, it's so complex and it involves so many different levels being pulled, uh, at the same time or or near the same time, you know, there, and that's, and that's part of what made it so fascinating to me is that, you know, my brother and I, um, excuse me, grew up together, you know, we were three years apart. Um, we had so many of the same, yeah, we had the same kind of life experiences. We had a happy childhood, you know, with our loving parents and, um, you know, we were in a very specific sort of environment, um, dealing with very specific sort of things, but, you know, it's sort of, you know, my, uh, you know, limited exposure to, um, what it meant to be addicted to drugs as a, as a young person or as a person when my brother was, you know, that was influenced by, you know, uh, weird dare programming I received in school, um, sort of judgmental programming from like adults around me or like religious environments about like who this happens to and why. And that's part of why this was so fascinating to me, right? Is that it's, and it made me feel defensive also too of my brother. Too, and I think a lot of people feel this way where, you know, it's, he's not a bad person. We're not a bad family. Um, it wasn't some sort of horrible, you know, nightmare thing that ha- that like happened in his childhood that made him like turn out this way. I think a lot of people mm. kind of want like go to that. Mm. Um, it's just a, it's a bunch of different stuff kind of firing at the same time. And I think that if you're a person who um, has a certain sort of, um, you know, psychosocial background, um, it can just kind of pull the lever at a time that's hard. And then you learn a yeah. habit and then you learn to repeat the behavior because your brain is sort of, that's what is adapting for you and your brain is learning, Oh, this is a, this is a coping mechanism, right? Now I have this coping mechanism and I, and it's difficult for me to stop. Um, and that's part of what makes it, you know, and that's why, yes. I mean, addiction is, is defined or at least was defined in the previous version of the DSM as, you know, drug seeking behavior, despite negative consequences, like that's built right into the definition of how we understand addiction. And yet so often people, you know, the response to it is sort of like, you know, just stop or, you know, like don't do it anymore. And it's got baked right into the definition is that people are unable to simply, you know, mind over matter their way out of it. They need some mm-hmm. kind of other modality to help them. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really important, isn't it? Um, uh, the word rewriting the brains um, used far too commonly in com- 
far too glibly, but the brain does adapt yeah. to cope with this um, abuse. So the brain wants to normalize that behavior in a sense, so it copes, but also wants more of it, isn't it? Because actually, as you say, it is removing you from pain or mm-hmm. pushing you towards some sort of opportunistic pleasure seeking. So it is it is a situation that they're going cold turkey and just hoping. I mean, it's a very it's a very brutal way to to um, to um, to stop. I mean, you can stop some things that way. I mean, smoking, yeah. perhaps um, mm-hmm. drinking. You've got to be really mm-hmm. careful of that approach. Yeah. But it, but it's this thing that um, I, I like the way you've described this as some sort of a, the moral element of it is really problematical, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. if this was an illness uh, or was categorized as a sort of physical illness, you wouldn't you wouldn't say you know you've got a problem with your leg uh, or well and just keep jumping up and down on it because it's fine. Oh, you're a bad person because you've got a difficult leg. So it's a problem with any mental health thing, but I think addiction is troublesome. I I just wonder how much your, I mean, we have obviously also a similar problem in a different culture, but I just wonder how much your culture is quite peculiar because if you consume American culture from inside, so you you live over there, which I've done, but also from outside, there's a very odd relationship with alcohol and um, any form of drug taking and weed mm-hmm. and such like and it's almost seen it's almost glamorized isn't it it seems yeah. really not naughty but also mm-hmm. then really really something to be aspired to and then if people are hooked onto it then it's very hard to get back off it and then of course there's the moral thing sort of falls upon you know down on your head um do you think of this as the religious i mean without getting caught in the religious debate about whether religion's right or wrong it's do you, re- do you reckon a religiosity is part of the challenge for this pro for redemption in this area. I think redemption I mean you talk yeah, and not to be too, you know, not to, to be too armchair theorizing about it, but it's like, yeah, I mean, definitely what you said about American culture glamorizing drug use is is one piece, but the other piece of American culture is extreme and unfettered capitalism that is supposed to be served at all times. So it's like I I used to work um in the neighborhood of Boston called Charlestown, where there would also be yeah. a lot of heavy drug use. Um, and I and I remember talking with a colleague, uh I don't know why I thought of this, just the way you were describing it made me really pop into my head. And I remember we were sitting once having lunch and you could see from Charlestown neighborhood over to the the, um, the garden, which is where like the Celtics play. It's like a big stadium, right? Oh, yeah. And there's the highway. It's this huge element of the skyline, right? And like on the billboard, uh, there's like a huge billboard space that you can see like from outer space. And it at the time and had been for a long time was a Budweiser advertisement. And he would sort and he would sort of point to that and be like, you know, everyone tells me that I have to be smart and I have to make good choices and whatever. And this is all my responsibility. But like, look at what I look at every day. You know, like I this is hitting me in the face all the time. And it's it's kind of bizarre that we all kind of and in America, you know, we we're, we're very much moving through, you know, a land of we're being advertised to at all times and not to yes. say like advertising causes that I'm not suggesting anything so flip as that, but you got to look at what the water that we're all swimming in, you know, and it's, it's kind of bizarre that we set people up in this way of, you know, everyone's expected to be sort of this like puritanical moral person all the time. And yet we li- we're swimming in this water. That's that, that's very confusing and full of um, yeah. kind of toxic messages. Um, and then, and then the minute that, you know, perhaps, your behavior trend is reflective of the toxic matches. It's, you know, how dare you listen to that? You know, you should have risen above, you should have, you know, whatever. Yes. Um, it's it's all attributed to the individual and your individual yeah. ability to overcome or, or whatever that might be. Um, it's bizarre. Yeah. It's really strange. And, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because you go from this massive in-group of oh, sort of normal life, uh, the American dream, blah, 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 blah. And then you go to these out-groups, don't you, where you end up in 
Well, there's no sort of what seems to be a clean source of support. I mean, that's why I suppose 12 Steps has been useful because it's a place that people can go to socialize and normalize. Definitely, yes. And we yes. understand. But I, we've had yes. a lot, I've had, I remember, um, Oh, I can't remember. I think Veronica Viale, I think years ago we had a podcast with her and she was just saying that it just doesn't work for a lot of people. In fact, she re- she thought it didn't work for the vast majority, mm-hmm. but, all, but it was almost seen as being a um, uh, something that you were seen to be done rather than mm-hmm. something that actually had much impact. Now, I can't comment because I've never been through that process, but... It, it, it is interesting to know what other treatments are around because in my therapy clinic, obviously, I get lots of people who are using and abusing um, all sorts of substances. And, and we, we are remarkably um, deficient in the number of tools at our disposal. So, mm-hmm. so I wonder what you came across that your yeah. work that you either investigated and discarded yeah. or investigated and used. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the thing that you say too about 12 Step, uh, one of the most interesting um, pieces of research that I've seen recently about the 12 Steps is a, a study that came out of um, a research branch of the Massachusetts General Hospital, and they looked into the efficacy of 12 Steps, yeah. and they found that the, the crucial, crucial thing here is for people who are cons- actively consenting and want to do 12 steps. So basically people who buy in, yeah. if people are into the model, people like the approach, if people are into it, it's very effective, you know, like yeah. very effective. So for people who are showing up at these meetings and finding something there that's valuable, whether it's the community aspect, whether it's the sharing aspect, whether it's all of that combined, like whatever it might be, like if you are choosing to be part of it and you're saying, I want this for myself and I believe this is going to help me. It's very effective. Um, there is no data on the the people it fails, you know? And so I, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of times, you know, the people that it fails are not with us to tell their story. You know, they don't survive because this is the only modality that we offer to people. And then mm-hmm. if it doesn't work for you, there's something wrong with you personally. It just doesn't mean, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like any other form of care. You, like you said, you know, I mean, with uh, depression or even with, you know, like diabetes, you know, it's not one size fits all different treatments work for different people because of the complexity of addiction. The complexity of what brings you to this condition is different for every individual. Mm. So, um, what works for one person is not going to work for another person necessarily. Um, but we do know like the categories of care, um, that could be offered. So it's interesting with 12 steps, but, um, yeah, in terms of opioid addiction, you know, their medications are the, the most effective uh, treatment for heroin addiction. Uh, there is unbelievable research on their efficacy. It is incredibly difficult to access them. Um, incredibly, incredibly difficult. Uh, and, you know, different different sorts of forms of talk therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. There are a lot of things that are, are uh, that we know theoretically and technically do work. Um, it's, it's the complexity of the American medical system, I think too, that keeps those things out of reach. Um, a lot of people who are using, uh, who have substance use disorders or addiction or uh, don't have you know, health insurance, um, don't have access to good hospitals, don't have access to the niche kind of care that we need. There aren't, the American medical system, um, in, in medical school, you never learn anything about addiction. That's not a part of your medical training unless you like sign up to do it as a specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that American doctors are reimbursed, you know, it's, it's motive. It just dictates who goes into what field, you know, you graduate from medical school with $300,000 in debt, you know, you, you that, that affects, you know, what sort of specialty you're going to choose and what the reimbursement rates, of course. Right. So um, it's a really, really complicated mess of like different sorts of um, unintentional motivators that, that prevent pe- prevent us from having a robust addiction treatment system in our medical system. And that keep people um, from getting the care that might actually make a difference in their lives. Yes. 
Yes, that's interesting. So there's two different factors there. One, which is the the actual medicine, but what you're saying there's a whole social and um, ecological problem uh, there. And I'm just wondering, but what else? So you talked about uh, medication CBT. Is there anything else that's a legitimate form of uh, treatment? other than cold turkey or sitting in a drafty chair at all. Yeah, yeah. And I think also it's important to um, emphasize that cold turkey is actively dangerous for people, yeah. you know, like if if you um, if you stop using, you know, and that's why it's so hard is I think people, I think a lot of people who do quit kind of want to say, I'm going to stop. They're, they think they're doing the, the moral thing, right? They're doing yeah. the thing everyone's been telling them to do. Um, but you put yourself at grave risk if you have a relapse or something uh, occurs that, that if you, if I'm using opioids every single day and then I stop, my tolerance goes way down. And then two weeks later, I have, I have, I end up using for whatever reason, uh, like that could be a, a much more deadly dose than yeah. would have been to me before. Um, and when you switch, even, you switch that, drugs, don't you? And replace one yeah. with another and that could yep. be even worse. Yeah. Yep. And even with alcohol, you know, for people, I mean, yep. you know, Amy Winehouse, like, you know, it's like people do what everyone tells them to do and stop and you can end up with um, a severe withdrawal symptoms that kill you. Um, so it's very, very, it's not only just not helpful, it's actively dangerous to tell people to just kind of stop in, in that way. So I think that, you know, what what I was surprised to learn and what I think is catching on more is this concept that addiction treatment can begin in your doctor's office. Um, if you're lucky enough to have access to a physician, um, like a regular a primary care physician with whom you feel really comfortable, I've heard incredible stories of people going to their doctor's office and saying, you know, I really need help with this. And, and and that doctor stepping up and triaging the right kind of care, making sure that there are people checking in on the individual, uh, keeping an eye out, making sure that they have the resources they need just to make sure just someone at the center sort of to, to um, connect the person with the medications, with the therapy, with the social supports, you know, housing jobs. Like these are yeah. things that, that people need as well and can help them and can help them sustain a regular life in recovery rather than falling back into old patterns or behaviors. Um, so as, as, uh, as triaged as the care can be and, you know, whatever it may involve, whether it's therapy, medications, um, and, and definitely social supports, um, having someone at the center, helping you navigate it, um, can be a really important part. And it doesn't have to be, you know, some people really benefit from, you know, going away to rehab in America. I'm not sure about over there, but there's always, there's a big sort of stereotype of like, going to rehab or like going away somewhere. Um, and that can be, that can be again, like AA, it's the same sort of thing. You know, if that worked for you, fantastic. I'm not mm. trying to attack anyone who it works for, but some, sometimes people are really harmed by those situations because they go away for 28 days to Shady Acres treatment program. They live in a bubble, you know, and then they have to come back to their life at the end. And all that same stuff that you dropped, you know, is still there. You know, how am I going to live? How am I going to navigate yeah. the issues I'm having that are making me maybe want to self-medicate with substances? So it can also be, you know, outpatient treatment, going to the doctor a couple times a week while living independently or at home or wherever you live um, is remarkably effective as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just thinking of the as you talk, you're talking, and you talk about the cost and the um, um, how can I describe it? The cost of um, drug use and such like, and the cost of the medical fresh and blah 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 blah. Really, what you described there is something that's pretty it's pretty straightforward to fix in a strange sort of way. It's some sort of ongoing support. It's career career management, job management, job counselling, housing support. It's Probably, I mean, depending on the class situation of where you are, it might be something to do with um, some sort of benefits or support system. You, you've got mm -hmm. a weird system over there. 
God knows what it means over there, but uh, over here we've got a different problem. But it, it, it does actually sound the way you describe it. There, it sounds a solvable issue. It sounds like if you've got a, you know, like a career, like a, I mean, like a drugs monitor or a drugs counselor or a repatriation or a redemptive person, you can see people getting back on their feet, can't you? And it's, and it's odd, and it's odd that the churches don't take a more um, pragmatic solution because actually it's. It's just about that, isn't it? I'm just thinking in our own country, who who is it that does that? And we fall back on the more on the state here. Mm. And I don't know that we have that sort of holistic service. It really is not joined up. And yet the cost of not joining up, it seems her- I wonder if there's any studies done on that. The the, the Yeah, I mean the co- uh, yeah, billions a, a year. Yeah. Um and, and it's it's a classic, you know, and you see this play out with a lot of American issues, um, where not only would it save lives and improve lives to treat it earlier, it would save just absolutely buckets of money if we yeah. could just address this sooner down the line. But there are all these other factors at play that prevent people from seeking care um, in a timely manner. Um, and and so when they do go to the ER with an intense infection or an overdose or something like that, it's, it's, it's way harder and more expensive to treat the condition then than it yeah. would have been if six months ago, someone was able to go to their doctor and say, eh, I don't know, I'm struggling, you know, I, I might yeah. need a little support here. Um, but it's in no uh, one's interest. It's in no drug manufacturer's interest for people to be uh, cured early. It's not in a healthcare and our, you know, no. our, our, our health and our health environment, you know, they bill in 15 minute increments and they're usually, yeah. and there has to be some kind of, you know, to sit there and talk and, and you know, that would be, uh, no, it's got to, we got to move you through. What's the pill you need? You know, that sort of attitude, yeah. even though, you know, like, and not to diminish the effect of medications are remarkably effective. It's just that we're always rushing. Um, and, and there's not really an interest in really listening to a patient and thinking about what they actually might need or, or how difficult this might be. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and you'll have to think of a lifetime of the social stigma of drug use and the social stigma of addiction, like that really makes it hard for people to, mm-hmm. to uh, ask for help when they need it, or even be open yeah. to the idea of getting help because so, so many times people are often in deep, deep justified denial about their, about the issue because we we see all the negative consequences every day. You know, you could go to jail, <laughs> literally mm-hmm. um, you could have your kids taken away, lose your job. There are a lot of real tangible um, uh, consequences uh, that we've chosen to assign to drug to addiction and drug use um, mm. that keep people from seeking help. And then there is kind of a lot of, you know, <laughs> head scratching. I think that a lot of people, you know, who know, who know about this, you find very frustrating is that, you know, yeah. it's not this big mystery why people aren't seeking treatment. And also it's, it's not this un it's not this vexing social issue that everyone kind of acts like it is like, there's just kind of gosh, there's just no solution. Yeah. Like we know a lot of things that would make a huge, huge difference. It's just a matter of sort yeah. of having the momentum and the will to implement them. Mm, interesting. that. So you have areas which are over-medicalized, so you have anxiety and depression where you go to the doctor, say it, and then you get pills immediately. So you've got to suspect there's been some sort of uh, sponsorship going on there. Then you have um, this scenario where people are under-prescribed medication because you're getting the wrong medication. And then you have sort of what's happened recently is this big drive for HRT for women in their um, you know, mm. perimenopause and such area, mm-hmm. where it's never been available before. And then suddenly we're discovering these massive reductions in anxiety and depression mm. and brain fog and all sorts of things just by re-prescribing HRT. And now suddenly you've got massive increases in the cost of HRT mm-hmm. and massive reductions in the cost of anxiety drugs. drugs. So... There's there's a there's there's all sorts of vested interests around the outside of this, which he, which is quite fascinating. So, part of what we're doing here, of course, is getting into medical philosophy, and I know we have to be very careful on that because then 
we're just a trading opinions rather than anything else. Of course, I know. Which is, and it's, which is it's, lovely, it's, but not very interesting, right. I think. So, yeah. so so you've written a book and, yes. and I'm guessing having spoken to you so far, that's going to be a pretty, pretty practical and um, pragmatic book. So tell me more about it. Sure, I hope it is. So it, it's primarily structured as a memoir. So it's 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 about um, the time period uh, of my brother's illness intensifying and of him passing away, and then follows me for about a year after that, being in a very intense sort of grief fog state and looking for some sort of uh, way forward through that. And so I happened to get really into distance running. So I started, you know, I signed up for a half marathon. And I trained for that, um, and so the book uses that sort of uh, time period to, to chart, you know, me looking into all this, this heavy stuff of addiction and drug use and kind of wondering like what happened in my family, what happened to my brother, what happened to me, um, and why, and, and what's happening to people that go through similar things. So, so it's sort of a mix of, of, you know, nonfiction that explores those, the psychosocial factors that we've kind of touched on of addiction and also, you know, mm. uh, grief and trauma and just sort of like a, trying to make it like a human story that people can relate to. I mean, I've read and, and the book sites, you know, I've read, there are so many just mm. fantastic resources out there. There's so many incredible books, um, uh, about, uh, addiction and about drug use and stuff like that. Um, and I am not a medical expert. I am not a doctor. Um, and I didn't want to present myself as such. I just presented myself as a, as a writer and a journalist and someone who's interested in these sorts of things. So I tried to weave that information that I found salient, that I pulled from those great resources into a human story, because I thought that that was where my strength was. And that was where I could, you know, hopefully help people take people along on this journey with me, um, rather than having it like a medical paper or things that have, that are so, so valuable in, in the communities there for. But I tried to write something for people like me who, who, mm when it happened to you, you know, it was just sort of like this dizzying experience and so confusing to unpack both the misinformation that you spent a lifetime absorbing and, and digest the information that's actually mm. uh, useful. And who's valid. it for? Who, 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 who is your sort of target audience when you wrote it? I think it's, you know, and I worked, I've worked with nonprofits. I've met so many people um, in all walks of life. And it's anyone who's been through this, it's just like you kind of lock into eyes with each other and you just like, no. And everybody who's been through this with someone just kind of has this like feeling inside that that you get it, but not, you know, you get it, the, the feeling of having a loss like this, but there's so many questions and there's so much that is misunderstood. And did I do enough? And what else could I have done? Um, how could we have prevented this from happening? I think is something that people go through when you lose someone, anyone at a young age, but especially to something as preventable and treatable as addiction, yeah. as I've learned. Um, you know, I think I always got the impression that it was just sort of like this red mark on him and it was going to be the death of him. And I think part of why it was the death of him is everyone telling us it was going to be the death of him because actually learning mm -hmm. it, learning the science of addiction, learning what, like, it's a remarkably treatable condition. People, people can and do recover. It's a very, very hopeful story when you're able to talk to people who are in, in recovery from substance use disorders and have lived in recovery and know firsthand how beautiful it can be. But when you're on the, when someone in your family is going through this too often, I think people act like it's this, it's this, um, a death sentence, you know, and yeah. nothing can be done kind of right. And they're just like this problem person and you can't figure it out, but a lot can be done. So I think I just wanted people to feel, especially now in the States, I mean, literally every single person I've ever talked to about this book um, has said, you know, actually my cousin or actually my ex-husband or actually my son or something like pe so many people have a direct connection to this issue. Never mind. secret. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah. And people just want to spill their guts to you because they're so relieved yeah. that someone's just talking about it in an open way. Yeah. Um. And, and so so that's really who it's for. And I think that, you know, even if you do come across someone who hasn't 
had that immediate connection. You know, the 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 narr- the opioid epidemic narrative has been you know national news for many years, and Sackler yeah. family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the whole thing. So I think that there are people. You know, I think that even when people haven't been through it uh, firsthand, I think there's a lot of curiosity about the issue, and I think that the more people are aware of um, the true nature of addiction, the better. You know, it's sort of like you see some like social like a, a, like a like a social um, tipping point with with pr- public opinion, you know, yeah. and trying to help people understand that this isn't, this maybe isn't what they think it is. And if, if everybody has the information, um, I think we can be a little more compassionate and call for the right sorts of approaches um, that we yeah. need to fix this. Yeah. I, th- I think that's an incredibly hopeful message, Jess. I mean, I really, I really like what you said there. I think that's, uh, well, like you said, your hope is going to be practical and such like. So I've just been onto Amazon and I've noticed it there. And I guess um, it's all as all good booksellers. So um, as the old phrase goes, and it's called, remind me? 30,000 Steps. So yeah. it is, a, It is the subtitle is a memoir of sprinting toward life after loss. So um, it's doing and I'm guessing yeah. if people want to get hold of you about your writing and the other things that you get up to, as well as the book, you can go to your site, which is mm-hmm. jesskeefe.com. Yep, that's right. with two Fs, S, S's. Yes, <laughs> Jess. K, K with three E's yeah. and no O's. <laughs> no O's, as we learned. And I'm also, um, if people want to keep up with me on, you know, social media is uh, a horror, like, you know, it's horrible, but also I like to connect people people there too. If you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm Jess Keefe on those as well. So Very good. Brilliant. Uh, Jess, thank you so much. I, sometimes I don't know what's going to happen on a podcast and uh, for all sorts of reasons, yours w- w- was interesting today. So oh, it's good, been an I'm absolute glad. joy to meet you and I've really learned so much and uh, I really want to do what I can to encourage you. So thanks so thank much you. for spending your time with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a great conversation. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.